today. We ask that you would uh, give them a sense of your presence at their understanding this morning. Help them to see and know you as you would have them see and know you. And may we all be made like children this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, our text, um, oh yeah, maybe Al, actually you could flip through this at least. Um, our text is from, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, kind of a short one. It's, it's kind of the, the second half of what we read and, and considered last week. Paul writes, For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you'll remember um, how personally connected to the Thessalonians Paul was. Uh, He came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. He had come up through uh, Asia Minor, kind of today, modern-day Turkey. And the hope was to visit the churches that he had established and planted on his first journey. But God kind of redirects him, and he redirects him up into Macedonia, uh, where Thessalonica is up north of Greece. He plants this church there. Again, he doesn't have long with them, just a few weeks. Just a few weeks there. But we get a glimpse here in this passage, just what it was like for Paul to be in that place. We know that he suffered. We've talked about that quite a bit, how his preaching caused a stir in the synagogue. After leaving the synagogue, he went literally next door to a guy named Jason's house. Um, Jason is a very, not a very Jewish name. It's a very Greek name. Uh, and he hung out with Jason for a while and, and preached out of his house and planted his church out of that spot. Uh, they probably, just a side note, they probably would have had um, some kind of courtyard, right? And so to plant a church would have been a pretty public thing. He would have planted it just almost literally in the guy's, in, kind of in the guy's courtyard in his plaza uh, there, where people walking by would be able to see what was going on. And yet he comes to them, at, moving into Jason's house doesn't get him out of hot water. There's still this this sort of movement against Paul and everything he's doing. And so the town kind of comes in an uproar. You sort of imagine the the villagers coming with pitchforks and torches, um, you know, ready to drive him out. And they are. They spread rumors about him. um, And they literally, after just about a month, they drive him out of town. And that's when he ends up in Corinth. And he writes this letter, probably the first letter written in the New Testament, writes this even chronologically. it, It was actually written even before the Gospels would have been written. Um, writes this back to the Thessalonians. And really the heart of the letter is not like a lot of Paul's letters. I heard this crazy thing is happening and I need to correct it. <laughs> right? That's a lot of, that's like half of the New Testament is Paul just saying, stop everybody, stop that thing. Uh, but Thessalonians is him going, I love you guys so much and our time got cut short and I have a little bit more that I need to teach you. I got a little bit more that I need to tell you. It's really a pretty encouraging letter. Because he calls them and and reminds them of God's goodness, God's grace, the way that God has already worked among them and how God wants to further and deepen that work. Last week we encountered 
really a pretty profound image. Paul calls himself, in regard to the Thessalonians, a nursing mother. I loved you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. It's an incredible image. The image of of a parent who loves and gives of his own body. Right? Of a parent who pours out their own life for their children. Where if there is no mother, then there is no child. But even that physical connection. And now in this passage, he kind of moves through that, uh, that, that image of suffering, that image of a mother who is giving to their child out of love and connection and even physical connection. And now he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. And then later on in verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Paul says in this span of a couple verses, I was like a nursing mother to you. Now I was like a father. A lot of you maybe have heard the term tent making. Um, here's what it means. You work as a pastor full time and then you do something else full time. <laughs> right. It, it, it means um, so kind of pastoral work that happens alongside what you might call secular work or work kind of outside of the local church. And it comes from this very sort of space in Paul's ministry where he goes as a missionary to a place to plant a church, to lead a church, to grow a church, right? To actually grow them up, to mature them the way a father tries to mature their children. But along the way, rather than saying to the church, I'm here, provide for me. Paul went into Thess, which is what I say. Uh, Paul went into Thessalonica. <laughs> I've blessed you with my presence. Um, uh, Paul goes into Thessalonica and, and, and he, he brings a trade with him. So his trade that he had learned from his own father, although he was a, a rabbi who had gone to school, really gone to kind of the best schools, he also had this trade of tent making. Right. Leather work, uh, working with fabric and things like that. So he would have been in the marketplace. What is that? Probably Sunday afternoon to Thursday or Friday morning. And then he would have taken Friday night and Saturday, the Sabbath, to teach explicitly. And then he would have been working those rest of the days. We learn in other uh, in other of his epistles that he actually had co-workers that he engaged in this work with. So as you walk through the marketplace in Thessalonica, you've got your pistachio stand and your almond stand and your persimmon stand and, and your hummus stand, I'm assuming. Uh, you know, you can buy cucumbers and all that kinds of stuff. And then here's the tent maker stand and there's a guy named Paul in there with a big needle. The needles that you use for leather are like huge, right? So he's got the needle and the, and the punch and I don't know, maybe he's, he's making tents, but he's also, you know, whipping up belts for people with their names along the back and all that kind of thing. And while people are standing in his little stall, he's talking to them. And it's only a couple of weeks. It's only three, four, maybe five weeks that he's actually doing this, but he's getting to know people like you do when you move into a new city. And he's connecting with them and he's figuring out, okay, who is the head of the guild here? Who runs things here in Thessalonica? Who's in charge of taking rent? Who's here on somebody else's dime? 
And then he starts to have those conversations. What brings you to this city? You're not from around here. Ah. I'm a rabbi from Jerusalem. But I've come here to talk about Jesus. A man who was from God. And who was crucified, believe it or not, but he didn't stay dead. That's interesting. Tell me about this guy who didn't stay dead. And then he would unfold the gospel for people. And this is a lot of people, I'm sure, went, hmm, okay, thanks for the tent, and just moved right along. But other people were so interested that he was will- they were willing to come back and talk later. And some were so interested that they were willing to show up in the synagogue on Saturday. And after he was kicked out of there, were willing to come into Jason's house and learn a little bit more about this Christ. It would have been so easy for Paul to do it differently. There were a lot of people in Paul's day called sophists. It's just a fancy word for public speaker. Public speaking was a lot more revered in the Thessalonians' world than it is in our world. Um, it, I don't know, maybe is akin to like video editing now. Like if you've got those skills, like you're going to be, you're going to be fine. You're going to have a job if you can edit videos somewhere. And sophists would come into town and they'd kind of show up on the street corner and they'd have all kinds of interesting things to say. Some of it would just be attention grabbing. Others would sort of be, okay, how do I get this? How do I get this crowd engaged? How do I get them fired up? How do I get them excited? Right? You think like a politician on, on, the, on the circuit <laughs> making their tour and they've got their stump speech and these sophists would come through. And in that same marketplace where everybody's selling their goods and Paul is in there making his tent, I guarantee you there were public speakers outside plying their trade. But what was it that the public speakers wanted? Ultimately, they wanted to be adopted If you were a sophist, a rhetorician, a public speaker, you wanted to be adopted by a rich family to come tutor their kids. So ultimately, the goal is I'm going to move from making YouTube videos and getting a bunch of hits and get blowing up online on social media until people kind of see me. And that's sort of a not so uh, not so steady income stream. So ultimately, I'm going to try to turn that into a university professor position. Right? That's what these sophists, these rhetoricians, these public speakers are coming to do. And most people would have thought that that's what Paul was coming to do. As he came into their world, they would have thought he's trying to gain a platform for himself so that he can get adopted by somebody so that he can live off of their dime. And that was a pretty good way, economically, it was a pretty good way to be an academic in the Thessalonian world. And yet Paul doesn't do that at all. He comes, he says, with labor and toil. We worked night and day filling out those tent orders, making sure that people's flaps didn't creak, you know? While we, so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. a beautiful image of leadership. It's an image maybe I wish (laughs) that I could emulate. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
Alongside his work, Paul continues to proclaim. Paul continues to preach. And he encourages, we've sort of said this before in Thessalonians. Paul does a thing here where anytime he says, wow, that was really great. What he actually means is you should do more of that. You know, the sort of classic example, I I think I used it last time. It's like I washed the dishes, right? Sometime in June, I probably washed the dishes. (laughs) And Andrew says to me, that was, thanks for washing the dishes. Now, what is she doing when she says that? Maybe she's thanking me for washing the dishes. Maybe she's also saying, you know, you could do that a little more often, (laughs) right? And that's kind of Paul here. It's like, let me call something out that you're doing. But what I'm really saying is, you know, you could do that a little bit more often. And so in the same way, he says to him, he talks about himself. I was here among you with labor and toil, working day and night so that I was not a burden to any of you. There's this sort of subtle hint. The people who are hearing this letter looking across the room going, you're kind of being a burden to me. Right. He's sort of encouraging the Thessalonians you know, you could work a little bit harder and not be such a burden to one another if you imitate me as I imitate Christ. But rather, in the church, by seeking to not be a burden on one another, we bear the burden that Christ lays on us for one another. Paul's vision of the church is not one where the base supports the top. You see that? If you're an Egyptian pharaoh or a Roman Caesar, the idea is how big can I get my base so that I'm stable up top? But that's never Paul's image. Paul's image is how does the head lead the body? So the higher up you are in the hierarchy, the more of a servant you are. The closer you get to the head, the more you need to think about the feet. Like he'll say, those who have the greatest honor take care of those who have the least honor. Or like Jesus will say, the first among you will be last. That's a beautiful moment we can see in Paul where we see in a sort of nitty-gritty, granular, everyday, moment-to-moment kind of way how Paul led his churches. And we're encouraged maybe to think about how we might lead in our little spheres of influence. Maybe it's a whole church. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's one little corner of a neighborhood or an apartment block. Where we say, how might I lead? Not as one who seeks to be supported and have everybody come behind me. But as one who seeks to say, how might I bear somebody else's burden? Knowing that that's ultimately what this work of ministry is. The other question we can often ask in this as Christians who have heard the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the world. Right? Right? Teaching, preaching and teaching people, baptizing, bringing them into the, I know this, I'm botching the quotation, uh, but bringing people into the fullness of the faith, right? 
The other question we kind of have for Paul is how is it that he actually went about evangelizing? It'd be really nice to know. There's about 42,000 books on the Christian bookstore shelves about how to share your faith. And it'd be really great if Paul would just tell us, this is how you do it. Right? Contemporary models we get often are, frankly, really open to uh, perversion. They're open to getting kind of twisted and getting our pride all caught up in them. You get your street preachers who are kind of out on the corner yelling about stuff. Sometimes the people they know, but usually people they don't know. Around here, I always kind of think of it as John 3.16-ing. You know, writing on... I, I don't know the... I have no idea who actually, like, writes John 3.16 on all the curbs. Around here, if you drive around a little bit and pay attention. Um, and sometimes I, I assume it's the same guy because he's wearing a John 3.16 shirt and he's standing over Highway 50 going like this. Um, and I, I'd love to talk to him. I probably should uh, just stop when I actually see him. But it's, I, I'm sure for him it's, it's, a, it's a form of evangelism. The idea is everybody knows the verse John 3.16 or they can at least find it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whosoever believed in him will not perish but have eternal life. Right? But, but it kind of like street preaching sometimes. That, it's not really what Paul is doing. Paul's not just taking the information and putting it out there for everybody to see. He's actually sitting down, engaged, embedded in a community, and all of the messy, weird, ugly stuff that comes along with that. He's engaged in people's personal lives. He knows them from the market. When he walks into the coffee shop in Thessalonica, the baristas wave at him. They know who he is. Sometimes when we think about evangelism, we think, well, I got to invite people to church or I got to have strategies and arguments for how I'm going to respond and, and, and parry and, and, and kind of be able to back somebody into a logical corner so that they finally have to accept Jesus as their savior. And again, that's not what Paul does, even though he could. If anybody could logic somebody into the gospel, it's Paul. But that's not what he says. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. For him, it's about, did I bear people's burdens while I proclaimed the gospel of God? They say we here. He's talking about his co-authors, Timothy and Silas, by the way. But the idea is, We proclaimed, not to people who were strangers to us, but to people we knew. We lived out a life, not that you didn't see and that just was all about me, but ultimately you know, not only did I serve you and lift your burden, but I actually suffered on your behalf. Paul suffered shamefully. In the ancient world, we kind of have embraced shame as a culture, it seems. You sort of put it out there and celebrate it to some extent. The ancient world, that did not happen. Right? Shame was not something that you put on the big screen. In fact, the worst thing about Jesus was that he was crucified. He could have died just about any other way and people would have actually listened to him. The fact that he was crucified 
again, was an intentionally shameful act. It was about putting somebody up in public in a way that was utterly vulnerable. And we, as the church, so embrace that moment that we put flowers on our instrument of torture. Because in Christ, that symbol, that moment is transformed. Paul takes that shame, and rather than saying, I stood far off so that I wouldn't be vulnerable or shamed, he comes close. He lives a Christocentric, cruciform life. And this, I'm convinced and I'm trying to actually learn, is how a father lives. It's how a good father gives. Mothers, as a type, give themselves for the nourishment of their children. I mean that physically in nursing. I mean that emotionally. They are invested in the lives of their children. Fathers, as a type, give of their bodies for provision and protection. The symbol that always comes to mind is when I was about, I I think I was 10. I remember the house we were living in, and we were playing outside for my brother's birthday, so it would have been in May, and I hit a wiffle ball over the fence into our new neighbor's backyard, right? We didn't know anybody actually lived in the house. It it just seemed, this is in Lancaster, California. Um, It's a very desertified place. Uh, It's a dry location. And um, and kind of, you know, track housing, didn't know anybody lived there. Turns out the lady's name was Pat. Um, and so I go over the fence, because my dad told me to, uh, to get the ball. Because that's what you're supposed to do when you hit a ball over a fence, right? You're supposed to go get the ball. So I go to get the ball. We think it's a deserted house. And it was not a deserted house. Pat lived there. And so did her pit bull buddy. <laughs> Who had one eye. <laughs> and uh, was not very happy about me being in his yard. <laughs> And, and Buddy comes sprinting out of the dog door after me, really unhappy, looking like the, the beast from Sandlot, right? <laughs> About ready to rip my leg off. And he did. He got, his, he got his mouth around my leg. I was able to pull it back, so I just got scratches. Um, and then over the fence comes my dad with a wiffle ball bat. <laughs> My dad does not love dogs. Um, He especially does not love Buddy the one-eyed pit bull. Um, But he backed Buddy down all the way to his door. And then somehow got back over the fence. (laughs) Right? And, And that, for me, is the image that will always probably be burned into my head of what it is to be a father who puts their body on the line for their son. He could have let me learn my lesson. I mean, really, you should check a yard before you just go jumping in. You should survey and see whether there's any, you know, dog droppings to decide whether it might be a good idea to jump over or not, right? And that dog hated us for the rest of our time in that house. He was not happy about us playing basketball and doing other things. But that's what fathers do. Fathers put themselves in harm's way. And it's what Paul does. 
he puts himself in between, literally here, the mobs and the church. And on the one hand, if if you're looking at the situation with Paul and you're trying to slander him, it'd be really easy to say, hey, look, Paul left. Paul hung out with you for a few weeks and then he was out of here. He didn't even finish teaching you. It'd be really easy to talk about how Paul gave up when he should have persevered, how he didn't really push into suffering. He didn't really push into martyrdom. But I wonder if Paul left so that the church could survive. I wonder if Paul stepped out of town, snuck out actually, I think in the middle of the night, so that the church could continue to thrive. And what Paul does incredibly here is not assume that just because he's the mother and just because he's the father of this church, that he has to be there in order for it to thrive. He actually does an incredible thing, kind of like putting Moses in a basket on the Nile River and trusting that God will be with them. But in some ways, we see from Paul's heart in this letter that it costs him everything. It costs him everything to share Jesus. It costs him everything to continue to stay engaged with them. And I wonder, when we think about evangelism, when we think about how we share Jesus with the world, is it a kind of evangelism that costs us everything? When we share Jesus with something and with someone, and God willing, they accept him, do we then feel the burden of that person's discipleship? Do we feel the burden of their growth? Or do we say, okay, great, I got information transfer across. Now, I'm not, I'm not responsible for seeing that they actually mature. Do mothers give birth to their children and hold them up and go, wow, isn't that incredible? Here you go. Right? Not unless there's some external force forcing that upon them. Mothers and fathers stick it out through the hard stuff, even when it means figuring out a way to stay connected from afar. Paul emphasizes here that evangelism is not just transferring the information about the gospel, but it's about transferring a kind of life. Notice what he says. Our conduct among you was holy and righteous and blameless. Holy and righteous and blameless. I wish I could say that about myself. <laughs> that my conduct to my family, that my conduct to you, my church, that my conduct to the world is holy and righteous and blameless. That there's nowhere you could point the finger and say that could have gone better. But Paul doesn't just say that to brag. Paul's not just pointing that out to let them know, no, I was actually really great. You guys have no idea what you're missing. Why does he say it? Look into the next verse. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you, exhorted and encouraged and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To live in a way that not only reflects that holiness, that blamelessness, that righteousness, 
but that prepares you to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Who calls you? Do you know that you're called? Do you know that when you heard the gospel of God, it wasn't just so that you could get into a better place after you died? It was so that you could be called to a life here. So you could be called out of what you were and into something new. Do you know that not only were you called, but you were called into a kingdom? And the incredible thing about a kingdom is that regardless of the citizens who are there, it's not like a democracy that's made up, that's constituted, right, by the citizens. It's led by the king. And so everywhere Jesus is, the kingdom is. You were called into his own kingdom and glory. And what Paul knows is that kingdom is not waiting for us somewhere far off, although it is. That kingdom has broken into this world even now. That glory has broken into this world even now. And sometimes it's hard to see because we give up pursuing it. Sometimes we take the easy way. We say, I'm going to let glory exist off on the horizon. But these are words for a people where the kingdom of God has been made real and active and manifest. Regardless of whether that's the synagogue in Thessalonica or Jason's house next door or the marketplace where Paul is sowing tents or a church building with matching pink and green carpets and chairs. That's ours, in case you're listening. (laughs) Or the coffee shop you find yourself in, the neighborhood, the sidewalk you find yourself walking down. That is where God's kingdom is desperate to break in. That is where God's glory is trying to push through. It's where the Lord is seeking to be manifest. The reason I think that Paul talks about the Father here and being a father is to point our minds, in fact, to God the Father, who he tells us in Romans 8 is about giving us an inheritance, an inheritance of his glory. What he says in Romans 8, 17 is that we are heirs and even fellow heirs with Christ. What does that mean? It means we have something coming our way. We have an inheritance, a spiritual inheritance, even a a kind of I don't mean spiritual as opposed to physical. I mean very, very real inheritance coming our way in Christ. But we have it so long as we suffer with him. In Thessalonians, we live and walk worthy of the calling of God into his kingdom. And so let me encourage you. First, I shudder to say like me, be holy and righteous and blameless the way Paul was. (laughs) Right? We've been given an example. Follow Christ as he followed Christ. But know that this is not simply for your own good. We don't just live a holy life because we want to feel holy. We live a holy life because we have been called to be a part of bringing that kingdom and that glory into a world that is desperate to know him. That's been made for him and does not know it yet. And then, by simple and faithful living, call others into the same kingdom and glory into which you've been called. 
you're probably not going to do it with millions of viewers or followers or attenders. You're probably not going to do it on a world tour. You're probably not going to do it speaking to stadiums. The way you and me are going to live into this kingdom and into this glory and call people to serve and follow and love this Lord is probably in a stall next to somebody selling pistachios or at a diner or over the back fence. The way you're going to do it is in these normal, everyday, simple encounters by just getting down to it, by saying, I'm willing to work, I'm willing to toil, I'm willing to put in my labor. And it doesn't have to look fancy or shiny or sparkly. But I'm going to do the work that God has called me to. And that, believe it or not, is the way that he wants to bring his kingdom and his glory into the world. There are people in this world who will listen to no one else but you. I hope that you're willing to seek them out. I know that most of us are here because somebody was willing to seek us out. Most of us weren't converted over the radio or the television. Most of us encountered Christ in the life of somebody right in front of us who was simple and got tired and cranky and struggled, but was willing to let the Lord work through them, if only in that moment. I wonder if you'll be that for somebody today, this week. Would you pray with me? Lord God in heaven, how deeply we need to be your people, to understand that you have given your son not just for your people, Israel, Lord, but for the life of the world. This world that you love, this world that you have called, this world that you seek to redeem and restore. As we come to this table, Lord God, this family meal, would you guide us into the knowledge of what it is to live in your kingdom? How to live that holy blameless and righteous life, not for our own good, but for your glory. Lord God, allow us to see, if only for a moment, a glimpse of your kingdom, a glimpse of your glory. Encourage us this week to serve and follow you in all the ways that you call us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.